Now, before we meet tonight's special guest, let's see how he has conquered empires ranging from oil rigs to real estate investment trusts to hospitals to health spas as he built the Reign of Rainwater. Welcome to the Rainmakers Podcast, where we will delve into the strategies of the world's top investors. While preparing for the initial three episodes, I stumbled across a TV interview of the investor we are researching online from a university library's database. This rare footage clarified how a prominent investor generated wealth, correcting my previous assumptions. The audio featured in the beginning of this episode was from this insightful interview in 1997's Wall Street Week with Louis Reichheiser. The investor is none other than Richard Rainwater, a Twitter favorite investor known for his stellar career. He began managing Bass Family Investments and turned their initial $50 million into a whopping $5 billion in 16 years. In the first part of this series, we'll delve into Rainwater's journey with the Bass Family, exploring his investment approach, his and the Bass's backgrounds and how they came together to form Bass Brothers Enterprises, how he developed his thesis, and real case studies to understand his money-making strategies. Enjoy the episode, and if you guys like it, subscribing and leaving a review would be amazing. Now let's start our Rainmaker's journey by studying Richard Rainwater. So how did Richard Rainwater make his money? Let's hear it from the man himself. Well, you know, I really don't look for values as much as I look for systemic changes, big major changes that are occurring in an industry. Give us, and, a, give us one example of how you've done this. Well, I mean, I've just run through a couple. I mean, the advent of the VCR and cable put tremendous demands on software in the, in the entertainment business. The advent of the cellular telephone created a brand new major industry. Hurricane Andrew wiped out the catastrophic reinsurance business. DRGs changed the way healthcare and hospital costs would be done. Uh, the, the upheaval in the real estate business created great opportunities to create for the first time an industry out of real estate versus more like a cottage business that it had been up until that time. Um, th there are these changes and right now what I think is the biggest change that's going on, a major systemic change, is something which is kind of unseen but the world is slowly growing into its resource base that it had over provided for during the 80s. And I believe all the people that are now playing unfettered capitalism are going to ultimately have dramatic impacts upon the entire world's resource base. That was Rainwater in his only public appearance in 1997 on the show Wall Street Week with Louis Ruckheiser. At the time, Rainwater was already a self-made billionaire and openly described his method of investing, saying he looks for major one-time transformations in industries. But what does he mean by that, and how does he do it? Richard Rainwater realized early on that rather than competing with highly specialized players, he needed to collaborate with top-tier experts in the field. By presenting Bass Brothers Enterprises as an institutional partner with substantial capital for investing in various asset classes, Rainwater positioned himself as the primary source of liquidity for leading figures in industries like real estate, buyouts, equities, and venture capital. His ability to strike deals with these influential players not only enabled Rainwater to glean insights from their expertise, but also served as a platform for the biggest single deals they would make later on in the 80s. To do this, Rainwater primarily relied on being an expert networker with a tenacity of a sports agent, recruiting exceptional individuals to start funds with or hire them in their internal deal team 
when talented individuals lack specific projects. Having these specialists in-house allowed Rainwater and the Basses to learn great investing quickly. Rainwater relied on the environment he shaped to be the broadest and most comprehensive generalist that can quickly take advantage of major opportunities when they presented themselves. While this all seemed well thought out and extremely well designed, in truth, it wasn't. Rainwater's thesis was formed as an iterative process of his own journey of trying to be an investor for a few years and failing. He was also influenced by the Bass family and how they wanted to run their firm after making their first fortune from their granduncle Sid Richardson. Before we jump right into the background of both the Bass family and Richard Rainwater, I wanted to give a quick shout out to many of the people who have helped me make these episodes. First and foremost, I want to thank at Turtle Bay underscore IO on Twitter for giving me the inspiration and help needed to research Richard Rainwater. I would also like to thank at Sidecar Cap, at R Hunter H, and at The Magic Bakery for helping me edit the series with great feedback on previous episodes I recorded. There are a ton of resources that will be used for this podcast that will be cited in the show notes. If you are interested in reading any particular source, please reach out to at RainmakersPod on Twitter and I will happily help. Now, let's get to the background. To start off, who are the Bass family? Their story begins with Sid Richardson, a man whose life was a roller coaster of fortunes closely documented in Sally Helgeson's 1981 book, Wildcatters, where I will give the best tidbits I learned about Sid Richardson from the chapter on him. Sid Richardson and Clint Murchison, his partner in his early ventures, were unconventional entrepreneurs who ventured into trading cattle, horses, and mineral leases, often making deals in domino parlors and hotel lobbies across Texas and Oklahoma. These men were no strangers to risk, and their reputation as bold gamblers was well-deserved. They mastered the art of bluffing and have successfully traded their mineral leases, using their salesmanship to convince buyers that there would be oil in the leases that they sold. After some time, Richardson and Murchison went their separate ways. Murchison focused on East Texas, while Richardson set his sights on Fort Worth. Sid Richardson had an up-and-down career, making and losing fortunes, but that did not stop him. He had an undeniable belief in luck and famously said, I would rather be lucky than smart because a lot of smart guys go hungry. Despite experiencing periods of both immense wealth and dire financial straits, he kept pushing forward and would not lose confidence in himself while going for his next deal. During his low points, friends like Eamon Carter and the very people he gambled with would come to his rescue, covering his debts and providing financial lifelines. Just as a little aside, Sid Richardson was not a person that was afraid of being in debt, and for what I could understand from Helgeson's book, was that many of these oil drillers took being in debt as a badge of honor. Richardson himself is quoted in the book telling Clint Murchison, saying, I must be the richest one between us, because I owe more money than you do. They've got paper of mine floating all the way to London, England. <laughs> so as you can see, these people, they are very much risk takers, and they didn't really care about the consequences of being in debt, and they would keep trying. Sid would keep riding these waves of making a fortune and then inevitably losing it, and would have to call his sister Annie Bass by payphone to get more money to continue buying mineral leases. After helping him out one more time after he lost his third fortune, Sid Richardson finally showed why he was so hell-bent on being optimistic and moving forward. In the 1930s, he made a significant purchase in the Keystone Field, situated on the Texas-New Mexico border. By 1943, his 40% interest in this field was valued at an estimated $800 million. 
he maintained this fortune and effectively became the, one of the richest people in America after he struck oil in the Keystone field. And the rest, as I say, was history for Sid Richardson. Richardson's nephew, on the other hand, Perry Bass, the son of his sister, Annie Bass, would learn the oil business from his uncle Sid while working for him. Richardson never got married, and when he died in 1959, he left most of his money to his foundation and left a small portion, about $11 million worth of his oil properties and real estate, to his only nephew, Perry Richardson Bass. And he would split the same amount, about $2.8 million, for each of Perry's four kids. From 1959 to 1970, Perry Bass worked diligently to manage the assets he inherited from his uncle. He secured loans from Chase Bank to purchase the remaining assets held by his uncle's nonprofit foundation. Despite the daunting task of managing substantial debt, Perry's hard work and strategic financial decisions transformed his new venture, called Bass Brothers Enterprises, into a $50 million oil enterprise. The future of the Bass family lay in the hands of Perry's eldest son. Sid Bass. With limited education in finance and only his father's experience in the oil and gas industry, Sid recognized the need for a guiding force. While Perry had his own advisors and helped develop some real estate as a means to diversify, he gave full autonomy to Sid and allowed him to run the firm how he saw fit. This is when Sid would make a lot of changes. Now that we understand who the Basses were and how they started with $50 million, Let's find out who Richard Rainwater was before working with the Bass family. Born into a modest Lebanese family, Rainwater's early life bore no indication of the extraordinary success he would eventually achieve. His path to greatness began with his academic pursuits. After completing his studies at the University of Texas, where he majored in math and physics, Rainwater earned a scholarship to attend the prestigious Stanford Business School. This opportunity marked the first step on his remarkable journey. Upon graduating from Stanford, Richard Rainwater was faced with the challenge of securing a job. With no immediate job prospects, he made a bold decision to approach the Goldman Sachs office in Dallas. His audacious request for employment showcased his determination and self-confidence. He insisted to one of the people working there, I've done well in school, gotten essentially all A's. For me, working for Goldman Sachs could be the next step in living the American dream. Rainwater's assertiveness paid off and he was offered a position as an institutional salesman at Goldman Sachs. His initial role served as a stepping stone for what would become a career marked by incredible success and influential partnerships. However, his tenure at Goldman Sachs lasted only one year. The biggest turning point in Rainwater's life occurred when one of his Stanford Business School classmates approached him with a unique proposition. The classmate saw Richard's expertise and assistance in managing the assets of the family's firm. That family enterprise was none other than the renowned Bass Brothers Enterprises. Before we move on, I want to emphasize that although both Rainwater and Sid were classmates at Stanford and both lived in Fort Worth, Rainwater and Sid were not close beforehand and only knew of each other in the classes that they took. Rainwater was a very outgoing person, which would be a hallmark of his success, and he would actually teach a workshop on applied math to his Stanford classmates, one of them being Reese Duca of IGSB. Rainwater said they weren't close and only knew of him saying he needed someone with common sense and that he'd been in classes with me and that I had displayed a lot of common sense. After joining the Bass Brothers, it was now time to use his common sense to help transform the family's wealth. So now let's move on to the early years. While Rainwater's investments are known and have been well documented when he made his big deals in the 80s, 
His mistakes in the 70s would provide the foundations to what would become his one-time transformation thesis. Early on, Sid Bass would make the decision to follow in Sid Richardson's footsteps and be a more concentrated investor instead of following the advice of diversifying. Rainwater confirms this in his 1997 interview. Well, I think that textbook advice is good if you want to stay rich, but if you ever want to get rich, you have to be very concentrated. It's one of the things that I realized when I began investing. Most of the great fortunes were made by people who were invested generally in only one thing. That was part of the reason why he hired Rainwater. He wanted to go back to the gunslinging days of his great uncle, Sid Richardson, and he needed someone like Rainwater who wouldn't be afraid to take these risks and was not already experienced enough where he would be risk averse. This reminds me of the story Stanley Druckenmiller would tell of why he got promoted when working at the Pittsburgh National Bank. Here's a little excerpt just to show you guys a connection. I started there when I was 23 years old, Druckenmiller says. I was in the research department. There was eight of us. I was the only one without an MBA, and I was the only one under 32 years of age. About a year and a half, I was banking, and a chemical analyst calls me into his office and announces he's going to make me the director of research. And these other eight guys and my 52-year-old boss are going to report to me. So I started to think I'm pretty good stuff here. But he instantly said, now, do you know why I'm doing this? I said, no. He says, because for the same reason they send 18-year-olds to war. You're too dumb, too young, and too inexperienced not to know what to charge. We around here have been in a bear market since 1968. This was 1978. I think a big bull market's coming. We've all got scars. We're not going to be able to pull the trigger. So I need a young, inexperienced guy. But I think you've got the magic to go in there and lead the charge. So this is actually very similar to Rainwater and Sid. They were the young, inexperienced guys leading the charge for the Bass family. Sid had the foresight to bring on people his age and experience, knowing that the people older than them had their own experiences in investing that would not allow them to make the bold investments they would need to make strong returns. Rainwater and Sid instead decided to have a very focused approach using the money they would make from the oil and gas properties to use for their own venture capital investments. They chose to do venture capital investing, seeing its high-risk, high-reward style, and decided to invest in a number of up-and-coming businesses locally around Fort Worth. Between 1970 and 1972, Rainwater was individually given $5 million on his own to invest, where he would actually lose it all. He describes this moment in a Harvard speech to students in 1988, saying, I did everything wrong, but I kind of sensed that I was learning what not to do. Rainwater was genuinely surprised that he had not been fired in that first year, and even asked Sid's father Perry why he was still kept around, to which Perry replied, I couldn't afford to let you go anywhere else after giving you such a high-class, expensive education. So the Bass brothers really gave a great environment for Rainwater to take risks, and this would eventually translate to their great returns later on. You're probably thinking, how could these two guys who knew little about investing at the time and even lost huge sums of money eventually turn it around. Well, this is where Rainwater's biggest contribution to the Basses came. Rainwater took it upon himself to not just learn from his own mistakes and the few investments he made. He used his people skills to line up meetings with the best investors of the era to learn exactly how they invested successfully. These meetings would have profound consequences to Rainwater's approach and would essentially lay out the path to what would be his thesis of being a contrarian and investing into one-time transformations. Rainwater lined up meetings with people like Phil Fisher, who wrote the book Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits, 
and Benjamin Graham and David Dodd, who famously taught Warren Buffett and were the pioneers of value investing. The first thing Rainwater immediately noticed was that each investor had their own specialty in the way that they invest. He realized early on that the best investors are a tight-knit community and only a few investors really share most of the success of the industry. In multiple articles, he mentions that his two investment role models that he learned the most from in those meetings were, number one, Warren Buffett, surprise, surprise, where he would actually collect letters Buffett wrote in the 70s that he would learn value investing, which would be a hallmark of the way he did his own investments for the basses. And number two, a way more intriguing figure in my opinion, Charles Allen Jr., otherwise known as Charlie Allen from Allen & Co. Trying to figure out why Charlie Allen was such an inspiration to Rainwater. Like I said, he would, he would always say his two role models were Allen and Buffett and a bunch of different articles. And I knew why, like he would explain easily why Buffett is an inspiration. I mean, I'm sure Buffett's an inspiration to all of us. But I was very curious to know why he kept saying Allen. So this led me into purchasing the only book that had an actual profile on Charlie Allen that was written in 1965. After reading this profile, it became clear why Rainwater regarded this person so highly and how Rainwater would essentially copy his approach in running Bass Brothers Enterprises. Here's a quick summary of who Charlie Allen was and how he ran his firm Allen & Co. as told in the book The Art of Success by the editors of Fortune magazine. Allen quit school to be a Wall Street runner at 15. He started his own investment firm at 19 and then made and lost a million dollars by the time he was 26 years old. During the Depression, he began training his way back to a million dollars. Then after the Depression, he started the investment bank that we now know called Allen & Co. Allen & Co. in turn took control of a wide range of assets like Colorado Fuel and Iron Corp., the military manufacturer Arma Corp. They also bought real estate developments in Kansas City, Chicago, real, uh, and Riverside, California and then bought two railroads, a steamship company, several bus lines, and an automotive company. Allen ran his investment bank much differently from others, and says the firm is a combination of an investment banking with a risk trust. He structured Allen & Co. to first, buy and control companies, second, invest in securities for the account of Allen & Co., and third, do underwriting for companies. Allen & Co.'s last priority was trading performed principally as an accommodation for certain customers and contacts. Allen & Co. behaved more like an investment firm than an actual bank, and that was all by design from Charlie Allen. Allen & Co. purposely was not a member of any stock exchange like other investment banks, which made it free from regulations that would not have allowed them to invest in a lot of the different companies they would end up owning. Charlie Allen would use Allen & Co. as a front to find deals for himself to invest in. Usually when companies go to investment banks, they would need help with things like buying a business, selling their business, or raising some sort of financing for the company. By presenting themselves as one of those middlemen on Wall Street, they would constantly get deals showed to them that they would end up owning themselves. How did Charlie Allen assess the deals he would see? Well, it talks about this extensively in the book where it says, he believes that it is better to move quickly even in error than to dwaddle over a proposition, consuming time and energy while other opportunities pass by. The willingness to say yes or no is one of the reasons why so many deals are brought to him and why his office is often the first port of call for brokers and finders. He would also buck the trend of competing with other investment banks and would instead employ other Wall Street firms for their own transactions, which he said created friends and a climate for reciprocal favors. 
Other things that jumped out in this profile of Allen was how he never had outside partners other than his siblings, but was known on Wall Street to pay his employees well. He would pay an 100% salary bonus to people who had worked there a minimum of five years. So now let's talk about how Richard Rainwater reconfigured Bass Brothers Enterprises to be a successful investment firm. Rainwater realized that he needed to be investing in a style that he called consistently rewarding and allowed him to constantly learn. And after meeting with 20 investors, he came up with two important lessons to which he would invest for the rest of his career. Number one, identify areas where practically everyone in the investment industry was successful. And number two, find a way to partner with the most successful person in that industry. To do this, Rainwater needed to find a way to nurture relationships with A players in big industries. While Rainwater was successful in soliciting advice from distinguished investors in the 70s, he could not find a way to do deals with many of these individuals. In that same Harvard speech he gave to students in 1988, he mentions that finding the right people with whom to go to business with is not difficult, but getting into business with them is, and this is an area that he believed required nurturing skills. Realizing that the exact people Richard Rainwater was looking for, like Phil Fisher or Warren Buffett, did not necessarily need the money that the Bass family had, it became increasingly important for him to find areas of investing where people were successful but needed money to start their own firms. The only problem was Rainwater and the Basses were not particularly looked at as the types of people that can find these individuals. But Rainwater kept persisting. And using his network he built at Goldman Sachs, he would see roadshows that various investors would present when they were raising money for their funds. One of these people Rainwater would meet is David Dunn. In a 1971 Forbes profile called The Education of Dave Dunn, it showed the dilemma he was facing when he was raising his first venture capital fund. Dunn had arguably one of the best resumes you could have for a venture capitalist of that time period. Here are some of the stats. In 1966, he became the youngest person to be a partner at J.W. Whitney one of the few venture funds of that time. He would be the person who sourced five of nine venture capital deals Whitney did in 1968 to 1969. He would increasingly have a bigger stake through his investments at J.W. Whitney, where he would become a millionaire within five years, had he stayed. So when he finally realized that he could do something bigger, he decided to venture out and start his own firm. He was ambitious. In the profile, it mentions this saying, he wanted it to be the best venture capital firm anywhere, with a reputation so solid that people would take his deals on faith, as if the name had been Whitney or Rockefeller. The initial equity was to be $20 million, soon supplemented by another $20 million in borrowing, which would grow within 10 years to a $300 million venture capital portfolio. More than half of this portfolio appreciation would consist of investments and ventures dreamed up by Dunn or his partners staffed by executives hired for this purpose. Dunn planned for his company to make a big splash from the start, with offices on both coasts and a staff so large that it might have to take on consulting to stay busy. The name he chose for his company was Idanta, from Sanskrit for a thing in being. Its appreciation, he figured, should be about 35% a year. So yeah, this guy was one of the best in the game. He was very ambitious, as he said to the Forbes profile, but he was having problems. When you are arguably one of the youngest and brightest venture capitalists who's eager to raise a fund, you would think it would have been funded easily. Dunn's problem and Rainwater's opportunity was timing. When he was raising money in 1970, the market crashed, making it nearly impossible to raise money for high-risk ventures. Two banks Dunn tried to raise from 
but later pull out and say it was deemed illegal from the risk department to do. While Dunn came in with confidence that he would raise the fund, he would instead take the year off and travel with his family until he could raise the money. In between his meetings with banks, however, he decided to take a meeting with Richard Rainwater after he had shown interest in the fund. Rainwater took the opportunity to share with him his own venture investments that he made with Sid earlier that year, to which Dunn retells in his oral history, saying, He said, I want to tell you what we've been doing, just to get your opinion. He's talking about Rainwater. So he ran through about 10 investments that they had, how much they put in, what the companies were doing, and how and what they were working on. So he got through it and said, what do you think? And I said, Richard, have you heard of that radio program? Which I guess subsequently went on television called Major Bo's Amateur Hour. I said, this is Richard and Sid's Amateur Hour. You guys honestly don't know what you're doing. So how's that for a meeting? But he, he continues saying, and Richard knew he did not know what he was doing. That's why he was having dinner with me. That actually, I guess, made an impression on him. It was the first time anyone who was hoping to raise money from them suggested that they are running an amateur hour. Rainwater did not take any offense to Dunn's remarks and had already known of his own amateur investing. He used this meeting as a means to assess Dunn and learn from Dunn being the distinguished investor he was. Rainwater really liked what he saw, but at the time of the meeting, Dunn indicated to Rainwater that he was still trying to raise money from other banks and indicated to Rainwater that he and the Basses can feel free to be part of the group to which Rainwater declined because he did not want to be a small, limited partner in the fund. But while Dunn stopped trying to raise money after failing to get banks on board and decided to take his family on vacation, Rainwater came calling. He describes this moment in his oral history again, saying, Richard reached out to me and said, Look, Dave, I understand you're having problems raising your money. I confirmed the challenge I faced. Richard responded, Well, the only reason we didn't invest was that we didn't want to merely be a bit player in a larger organization. We'd be interested in discussing the possibility of providing all the necessary funding. I replied, I'd be willing to discuss that as well. After completing my vacation and returning my family home, I traveled to Fort Worth and met with Richard and Sid. Ultimately, we struck a deal in which they provided $8 million to launch Idanta, along with a commitment to contribute another $2 million if the need arose. Interestingly, I never required the additional $2 million and we initiated Idanta with the initial $8 million. So because of bad timing and Rainwater's contrarian spirit, he got to start a fund with one of the best young venture capitalists at that time. This marked the first big deal Rainwater would make for the Basses, and it checked all the boxes. They made a big concentrated investment in the fund by being the sole limited partner with their $8 million. Venture capital was an industry to which most were successful at that time. And last but not least, they invested in arguably the best guy in the industry who was raising a fund that year. But what truly allowed Rainwater to be able to make this deal was timing. Rainwater realized this and so began his fourth addition to his investment checklist, being a contrarian. Being a contrarian allowed Rainwater access to this deal simply because all the big banks who would have backed Dunn in the late 60s pulled out because of the market decline of the 70s. This became Rainwater's new edge that would be a constant source of deal flow for his future investments. So keep this in mind. The contrarian spirit came to Rainwater because of deals like this. When the timing was bad for a lot of institutional players, Rainwater and the Basses would jump in. We're going to see this multiple times throughout this episode and throughout the Rainwater series. By backing the best talent in these investment fields that were out of favor, it allowed Rainwater to partner and learn from these players and apply the knowledge he gets from being in business with them 
actual opportunities the Bass family can take advantage of in the oil and gas investing. So the success equation for rainwater was to identify industries that had great success but were now out of favor and then partner with investors in these industries who needed money to invest as their sole partners. During this time, Rainwater was meeting with different investors in many different investment industries that needed capital. And in doing so, he figured out what industries to create funds for. Number one, venture capital. He started Idanta Partners with Dunn, which we detailed his resume in the past. Number two, real estate. At the very same time where venture capital funds were hard to raise, the REITs that were very popular in the 60s crashed. This became the entry point for Rainwater, where he bought a hotel REIT called Pick Hotels and combined it with Americana Hotels with an A-player hotel investor, Harold Milner. They had also another more important real estate fund called Bass Realty, which was headed by David G. Marshall, who led one of the only successful REITs of that time period. He was stationed out in Philadelphia and was in charge of all their real estate deals on the East Coast. Number three, public equities. In 1973, the market had crashed due to the Middle East oil embargo, sending equities in freefall. Rainwater would then establish an in-house equities operation headed by John Scully, his Stanford classmate, called Texas Partners, where they would give him ample funds in-house for him to find stocks to buy. Scully would later rename this fund San Francisco Partners after moving back to the Bay Area and would later start the legendary fund SPO Partners when he left on his own. And number four, arbitrage. As another way to take advantage of the low prices in the 70s, Rainwater recruited Tommy Taylor from Kidder Peabody to run the arbitrage desk for the Bassies. While the Middle East oil embargo did cause problems to some of the few equity investments Rainwater and Sid made on their own, forcing them to sell because they didn't know what was going on in the time period, oil prices started picking back up and Bass Brothers Enterprises, meaning the oil companies that they owned, was throwing off millions of dollars of cash per month. This could not have happened in a better time as the rest of the markets were in freefall and with their plan to partner with the best players, it suddenly became clear that they were one of the only sources of cash at that time, where many industries were now in need of liquidity. This now brings us to Rainwater's deal-making in the 70s. With the four different industries Rainwater identified to start funds being venture capital, real estate, public equities, and arbitrage, and the influx of cash coming in from the Bass Brothers oil operation, Rainwater now had to go on the offensive and find ways to do deals with all these great opportunities in front of him. With each meeting Rainwater now took, he assessed both the deal the person presented as well as the person presenting it. It did not matter what type of deal was presented. If Rainwater thought the person was an A player in a money-making industry, he would try to figure out any way to be in partnership with that person. In the book Rainmaker by Anthony Bianco, he gives a detail on how Rainwater would make his deals during these years saying, the idea was to identify businessmen who demonstrated an ability to make money at something very specific. World-class niche players, Rainwater called them, and become their partners. This was harder than it sounded since smart, proven operators usually are precisely those least in need of capital. However, the Bass family possessed two traits rarely found together in wealthy backers, generosity and passivity. And Rainwater proved a cheerfully relentless talent scout. Whether the deal involved refinancing an existing business, Acquiring a company or starting a new one, Bass, Rainwater, and a small staff of financial specialists handled it all themselves. What the two Stanford classmates had done, in effect, was to attach a self-contained merchant bank to the oil company that was the Bass Brothers Enterprises. This was from the book Rainmaker by Anthony Bianco. 
But the genius of being able to partner with these world-class players in any way was that the world-class players believed that the Bass family had the same resources to do a deal like investment banks would. I hope it's starting to sound familiar with one of Rainwater's heroes, but we will explain later after I give you guys some more detail provided by Anthony Bianco. He says, For years, it was virtually impossible for outsiders to gauge the size of the Bass fortune, since most of the companies in which Bass and Rainwater had invested were privately held. In buying it to public companies, meanwhile, they rarely crossed the 5% threshold at which a stockholder was required to disclose his ownership to the SEC. It was the ultimate achievement of Bass and Rainwater as investors to reap grander profits than anyone else during the formative years of the 1980s hostile takeover wave without once restoring to actually making a hostile tender offer. So now let's go on a little aside here, just so we could connect some dots. While Warren Buffett liked to say he was 15% Phil Fisher and 85% Benjamin Graham, I believe that Richard Rainwater was 15% Buffett and 85% Charlie Allen. And these two excerpts provided by Bianco's book help explain why. Rainwater set up Bass Brothers Enterprises like a merchant bank and ran it exactly how Charlie Allen ran Allen & Co. Here are some similarities I noticed between Rainwater and Allen on how they ran their respective firms. Rainwater kept an image that Bass Brothers Enterprises had unlimited money just like Allen & Co. kept an image that they were only an investment bank. But because they were only a family-run business, they used all the Wall Street firms in the same way Allen & Co. had to facilitate their trades or raise money for ventures they had done too. Relying on their image of being the Medici family to these A players allowed Fort Worth to be one of their stops when they went to look for money. By making quick decisions like Charlie Allen, Rainwater essentially got to see the best deals from these A players and investment bankers who could rely on Rainwater's quick decisions to see if they can get a quick fee that was sent their way. Rainwater was notoriously known for taking multiple calls at once while still speaking to someone in person raising money. Seeing all these deals allowed him to jump at what would be the best partner in the best opportunity. In these meetings, he would also have the dealmakers he hired to quickly assess what was worthwhile and what wasn't. While he was quick to make investment decisions, he only had one problem. They had only $50 million and whatever the oil company at the time would generate while they were inking deals worth hundreds of millions of dollars. To evaluate these opportunities, Rainwater relied on the in-house deal talent he had meticulously recruited after they left their previous positions as investors. By granting them equity stakes in these ventures, they were highly motivated and committed to rapidly assess the opportunities, aiding Rainwater in swift decision-making. Some of the in-house deal talent would include people like Al Checky, who worked as a president at Marriott where he helped Rainwater and the Basses raise money and negotiate deals. Rainwater would find these people to recruit from past meetings he had with them when they were pitching him deals of their own. In Checky's autobiography, he gives a great example of how Rainwater recruits by retelling the story of how he first met Rainwater. Checky says, I had first met Rainwater in 1975 when my efforts to find private investors for the New Orleans and Chicago hotel projects led me to the Bass family of Fort Worth. Richard was responsible for all of the family's non-oil investment activities, which were extensive and varied. In the pre-private equity world of the late 1970s, the Basses are one of a small group of private individuals who had the capacity and the will to make direct investments in non-public vehicles. They were players, and Richard was their undisputed playmaker. He was brilliant, irreverent, decisive, spontaneous, and uniquely outspoken. Frank Wells, the president of Walt Disney, would later ask him with genuine incredulity, saying, 
Richard, is there anything you think that you don't say? I had organized a tight presentation outlining the benefits of equity investment in my two hotel projects, particularly for non-corporate investors like the Basses. I thought I was doing well when, midway through it, Richard stopped me and announced, We can't do business together. You're as smart as I am. Why don't you join us and have some fun? As you can see, Rainwater really relied on his meetings with investors to make quick decisions on deals. But the genius of Rainwater was that he treated each meeting as an opportunity to assess the deals as well as talented people. Like in the case of Checky, if the deal itself went in pencil, Rainwater would still try to find ways to work with talented people. Rainwater would persistently call Checky for seven years trying to recruit him to rejoin the team until he finally did. Rainwater would do this with many different investors and bankers who he couldn't do a deal with and would also keep relationships with investors that Rainwater wanted to do deals with in the future when they were ready. Some of these people included Jeff Beck, an investment banker, which the book Rainmaker by Anthony Bianco is actually about, Roy Watson, who he tried to start a real estate fund with after Watson left the Irvine company to Disney, and the most notorious financial figure of the 80s, Michael Milken. Milken's going to be a very important figure later on in this story, as we will see, because he helped a lot with the Basses and Rainwater's investments in the 80s. As we will later find out, Rainwater's deal-making in the 70s would provide the foundation and network which would not only generate high returns, but would also provide the ecosystem for which Rainwater effectively could learn great investing. He would use the network he made, the deals he did, and his new experience investing in these funds to pursue more concentrated investments that would truly put him on the map. Before we move on to the 80s, let's talk about his notable deals in the 70s. In venture capital, his, his fund, his $8 million in Idanta would turn into $200 million by 1981. Dunn took advantage of the opportunity and would be the seed investor of two of the biggest IPOs of the 80s, with Idanta being the biggest equity owner in both Prime Computers and iOmega Computers, making up the bulk of the $200 million return. This would end up being the first and last time Dunn would raise capital and he would effectively retire after returning the money from that fund. In real estate, through the leadership of David G. Marshall of Bass Realty, they would end up owning $2 billion of real estate over the next 12 years in projects that included Pier 39 in San Francisco, a golf course development with Jack Nicholas in Scottsdale, Arizona, the Dorchester Apartments in Philadelphia, and Denver Place, a 2.5 million square foot mixed-use complex in Denver, Colorado. Marshall would also end up leaving the Basses in 1987 and would acquire back most of these properties from the Basses and set up a Marriott real estate, which still runs to this day. And in equities, under the leadership of John Scully and William Oberndorf, they would make big concentrated investments in many companies, including the retail chain Alexander's and Church's Chicken. But one I would like to highlight as a big win for them was their investment in Sperry and Hutchinson stamps. They would end up owning 20% in Sperry and Hutchinson when the stock was declining. While the stamps business was in decline and the stock price reflected that, their investment would resemble Buffett's blue chip stamp investment, where they knew the company had around $200 million to invest from the float of the stamps not being used. The management at Sperry and Hutchinson would use this float to diversify their holdings in buying properties and underwriting insurance claims and oil rigs. They would eventually raise their stake in the company from 20% to 36.3% and would sell their stake after Baldwin United purchased the company for $366 million in 1981 they would end up making an annual return of 79% from this investment. Just as a quick aside before we move on, Rainwater was still doing many different deals to fund buying companies and real estate with other established investors. He would use his previous deals with the investors he worked with to help assess and ultimately commit to making new investments. 
Also, collaboration was encouraged in a lot of these deals he would make. If he thought an investment was interesting, he would notoriously bring in some of his peers in the office and have them look at it as well to see their input. This cross-collaboration would lead to a lot of great deals. For example, Scully and Oberndorf saw the potential of owning Pier 39 in San Francisco, and after assessing it together with Rainwater, they would end up purchasing the asset and have David G. Marshall operating it using his real estate expertise. Rainwater was really open-minded and did not really care where the good ideas came from. If the deal had potential and he had a great team working on it, he would make the quick decision to funding it. Now, let's move on to Rainwater's 80s investments and his most notorious deal, investing and ultimately saving Disney. Now, let's talk about some of the deals that would make Rainwater a household name throughout Wall Street. In the 80s, Rainwater and the Bastards would be all over the newspapers for the big investments they would end up making in companies like Bluebell, Texaco, and ultimately saving Disney. But the common theme in all three of these investments had to do with the hottest trend that would take Wall Street by storm, leveraged buyouts. Michael Milken would change the course of financial history after realizing when the markets were overvaluing how risky company bonds really were. After reading a published academic paper on this phenomenon, he decided to be the maverick who would change this dogma and would start the junk bond desk at the investment bank he worked for called Drexel Burnham. Because of Milken's junk bond revolution, he would seed future billionaires like the Rails brothers, which he helped engineer the bonds to build Deneher, Ronald Perlman, who used junk bonds for many of his buyouts, and T. Boone Pickens, for example, who built his oil empire through the junk bonds of Milken. But last but not least, Richard Rainwater and the Basses were part of this exclusive group as well. Rainwater would not just be like the other raiders, however. He wanted to do something much bigger. He used his connections with Milken through their meetings for real estate deals in the 70s to having a meeting with him in Milken's Los Angeles office in the 80s. Recognizing this new investment industry and knowing Milken to be the best person in it, Rainwater would start a junk bond fund with Milken called the Bass Investment Limited Partnership. The Bass family would contribute $30 million to this endeavor, and Milken, along with Drexel employees, would contribute another $30 million. But because Rainwater became such a prominent figure in funding the best investment talent in these nascent industries, many institutional partners who wanted to be part of the action would connect with Rainwater. In this fund, Rainwater would attract a substantial investment from Equitable Life Insurance Company to be a limited partner in the fund, adding a staggering $540 million at a time where institutions would consider a $50 million investment very substantial. The Bass Investor Limited Partnership would be the foundation to where Rainwater would learn how to do these leveraged deals. By being a general partner with all the Drexel employees, he would see and make a ton of deals using the $600 million of dry powder to take advantage of the situation. This fund would do leverage buyouts in a bunch of very different businesses, such as doing an LBO of Perkins Family Restaurants with ex-Burger King CEO Donald Smith, doing an LBO of the slot machine manufacturer G-Tech with executive Robert Stern, acquiring and then issuing junk bonds for Darling Delaware, a fat and meat byproduct processing plant, and many other deals. This would be the perfect learning grounds for Rainwater to understand the ways of doing leveraged deals. He would take this learning from the Bass Investor Limited Partnership and apply it to his own investing. This was a common theme I saw in my research with Rainwater. As you will see in the following episodes, there will always be a smaller deal Rainwater would make to gain an insight before doing a much bigger deal. The Bass Investment Limited Partnership was his small deal when it came to leveraged buyouts. And by the way, this fund was also a huge success returning 100% a year for the six years it operated to the general partners and returning equitable life 30% a year over the same period. 
all of his learning throughout this period would be applied to much bigger takeover investments of public companies. Rainwater and the Basses would apply their new form knowledge and combine it with their expertise in oil and gas investing to try to take over Marathon Oil. But before they could take over the company, U.S. Steel would step in and acquire it instead. This would give them a profit of around $160 million. This would keep happening. They would try to take over the gene manufacturer Bluebell, for example, and the company would buy back their share, netting them $161 million from their $65 million investment. But all of these would be small in comparison to their ownership stake, to their 9% ownership stake of Texaco that amounted to $750 million. This would by and far be the single biggest investment Rainwater and the Basses made, and not only did it make them tight for cash to do new deals, they would actually have to use margin to even make this investment. Texaco was deemed a crown jewel for the Basses to add along with their oil assets, so they put all their eggs in this one basket, hoping to acquire the company. And this is what will set the stage for the genius that is Richard Rainwater. Let's talk about the Disney deal. Rainwater was not the type of man to sit and wait around. Even though they were out of cash to do deals, Rainwater would keep talking to different investors and operators to see what he can invest in. One of those deals that came to him during this time would be a land development company called Arvida. This company, heralded as Florida's counterpart to the famed Irvine Company, was in financial straits. Leading its CEO, Chuck Cobb, to approach Rainwater in Fort Worth for the funds required for a buyout. Again, Rainwater did not necessarily have the cash for this deal. Let me read you how Al Checky described how this deal would ultimately go down, though. He says, The acquisition and disposal of our Vital Corporation were examples of us getting it right, barely. When I heard that they could not scrape together more than a few million dollars amongst themselves and had exactly one week to produce ironclad financial commitments to purchase this large complex company, I wrote them off as a lost cause and went home for the weekend. Richard stayed to talk. The following Monday, I was in New York City at the headquarters of Merrill Lynch for a meeting with an investment banker. I excused myself and went to the restroom, where I found myself standing at a urinal next to Richard Rainwater. I said, aside from the obvious, what are you doing here? He said, I'm buying Arvida and I'm here to raise the money. At that moment, I understood exactly what Sid had meant about keeping an eye on Richard. Alcheki would play a pivotal role in securing the financing for the Arvida deal with Wells Fargo providing a $280 million loan to acquire the company. The Bass family contributed $20 million, primarily in equity, while Chuck Cobb and Arvida's management team added $5 million. This became one of the few deals he would do at this point because of the Texaco investment being too large. Rainwater would field many calls and would have to decline knowing that the cash that they had was tight. One of those calls was from a movie producer, Jonathan Taplin, who initially approached Rainwater with a proposal for a leveraged buyout of a studio named Lionsgate. That's not related to the more well-known Lionsgate films of today. However, Rainwater declined the offer, deeming it too small. This is described in great detail in the book Storming the Magic Kingdom by John Taylor. Here is the moment as told in the book where Rainwater said to Taplin, we don't have time for $5 million deals. Come back when you've got something bigger. To which Taplin would respond, how about Disney? Disney was a once mighty studio that lost their way after the death of Walt Disney. With Walt's unfortunate passing just three weeks after being diagnosed with lung cancer, the company lacked a succession plan. Ron Miller, Walt Disney's son-in-law and former Los Angeles Rams player, took charge in 1983. 
However, this marked the beginning of a challenging period for Disney. Box office failures like Conjure Man, Night Crossing, and Popeye left the company without a clear business plan to revitalize their real estate ventures. As a result, institutional partners lost confidence, leading to a significant sell-off of Disney's stock. For the first time, Disney faced the possibility of being taken over by an external party. Seeing Disney's declining box office numbers and management's complacency in addressing the issue, Saul Steinberg, one of Milken's customers for corporate raids, seized the opportunity by acquiring a minority stake in the company, aiming to eventually take over the entire company, just like the Basses would try to do with their Texaco investment. Steinberg planned to sell Disney for parts, with the studio likely ending up in the hands of someone like Kirk Krikorian, for example, who owned MGM at the time. The real estate in the hotels would have been sold to the highest bidder, while the parks would have found a new strategic partner to exploit their assets. So when Taplin brought this information to Rainwater, he was definitely interested. He would really think about investing in Disney, and as he and his team would analyze the opportunity, they would realize how big it actually was. But what made Disney so intriguing of an investment to Rainwater? Well, he now had extensive knowledge of real estate and hotels from the deals he did in the 70s with the great managers like David G. Marshall and Harold Milner. Their analysis revealed severe mismanagement of Disney's parks business, presenting a huge opportunity. Notably, Alchecki had contemplated a Disney buyout after observing the neglect of their parks and hotels while he was working at Marriott in the 70s. Rainwater's vision was to invest in Disney and transform its real estate management to optimize the development of additional hotels surrounding Disney World. By raising park prices, which had remained stagnant for several years and, not, and even had not kept pace with inflation, they could harness substantial profits. Rainwater's calculations indicated that a mere $1 increase in the $18 day pass at the time would generate $31 million in additional profits, earmarked for new film production. Rainwater had to devise a plan swiftly, however, knowing that Steinberg was going to take over the entire company using Milken's help. He had to do it with little funds as well, because they were still in the midst of their own takeover attempt of Texaco. But Rainwater had an ace up his sleeve, selling Arvida, which he bought months earlier. By selling Arvida to Disney, Rainwater would not only enjoy a 10x return on his equity investment of $20 million, translating into $200 million in Disney stock, but would also dilute Saul Steinberg's 5% stake, preventing a takeover. The acquisition of Arvida also furnished Disney with a strategic addition in the form of a land company capable of developing untapped land in Florida, near Disney World. And for some even better inside baseball of why this solution was so great, he provided this as a solution to the Disney executives as a means to stop the buyout. One of those executives happened to be Roy Watson, who Rainwater would try to create a real estate fund with in the 70s after he left the Irvine company. The reason Watson left the Irvine company was because he did not get the control he wanted to develop the land on the Irvine ranch, so he figured that he would use his real estate background to help Disney develop theirs. Arvida was also compared to the Irvine company as an investment. They had a large piece of land in Florida that needed to be developed in the same way that Roy Watson did in Irvine. So what was Rainwater essentially providing to Disney executive Roy Watson? Two solutions. A means to get a corporate raider off your back by diluting him through acquiring Arvida, and a restart for Roy Watson to now fulfill the vision he had for the Irvine company with Arvida. Watson would be instrumental in pushing this deal across the line. The cherry on top was that a great real estate operator in Chuck Cobb would come in and basically help build out Watson's vision, as well as develop the real estate and parks that the company was neglecting for so long. This would not be the final challenge in stopping a takeover of Disney, however. 
Erwin Jacobs, another prolific corporate raider, made an attempt to reconfigure Disney's management to enhance what he liked to call shareholder value. Luckily, the Bass Brothers had been bought out by Texaco as they prepared to pursue their own buyout of Getty Oil. Despite their differing views with the management of Texaco, the transaction netted the Bass Brothers $1.2 billion for their $750 million stake, allowing them to remain aligned with Texaco's management strategy. This afforded the Basses the freedom to concentrate solely on their Disney investment. Subsequently, they bought out Erwin Jacobs' stake in Disney, emerging as the largest shareholder in Disney in 1984 with a 25% stake in the company. This enhanced their influence over Disney's board and their ability to shape the selection of the next CEO. The challenge now lay in the studio aspect of Disney's business, a domain unfamiliar to Rainwater and the Basses. Rainwater embarked on a series of meetings with Hollywood executives to gain insights into the movie industry. Leveraging his extensive network, he initiated contact with George Lucas and Frank Wells to identify the best choice for Disney's new CEO, a task that was novel for Rainwater and the Basses at this point. Following endorsements of Michael Eisner by both Lucas and Wells, Rainwater and Sid Bass met with Eisner only for about an hour. Their discussion revolved around strategic changes for Disney, including raising park prices and revamping the film studio, thus entrusting him with the task of revitalizing Disney from its decline and steering it toward becoming the entertainment behemoth of the 1990s. Overall, Rainwater would invest $400 million of the Bass' money into Disney, and within a decade, this would turn into $2.5 billion. And this would mark the end of Richard Rainwater's investing career as part of the Bass family. To conclude, let's review real quick how Rainwater and the Basses turned their $50 million into $5 billion by the time he left. His thesis of investing in transformational changes within industries did not happen as a unique insight he would have at the beginning. It took a few years of trial and error and a realization of how rare it would be to partner with the best people in an industry when things go well. This in turn would force Rainwater to be a contrarian and back the best investors in industries that would be out of favor at that time. This allowed Rainwater to build Bass Brothers Enterprises into a merchant bank similar to Allen & Co., where he would back the best talent in the industries that needed cash at that time, which included venture capital, real estate, equities, and arbitrage. This in turn would allow Rainwater to not only invest alongside the best talent at low prices, he would also learn from these people as a young investor himself and then apply that knowledge when he would come into his own in the 80s. By creating this ecosystem, he would be on the precipice of a buyout industry and would start a fund with the best player doing it, Michael Milken. This would in turn allow him to learn from Milken and the Drexel employees running the fund, which later translated into doing his best deal for the Basses in buying Disney. This will conclude our first of three episodes on Richard Rainwater. Episodes 2 and 3 will focus more on when Rainwater set up his own shop, Rainwater Inc., after leaving the Bass family in 1986. In these episodes, we will learn more about how he calibrated his thesis to take advantage of many different opportunities happening around him in oil and gas and the healthcare industries. I hope you guys learned a ton this episode. If you have any feedback or suggestions on different investors for me to do case studies on, please reach out to me on Twitter at RainmakersPod or leave a review. Catch you guys for episodes two and three.